Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you are involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to take a look at an institution that touches our lives basically every day, and that is the United Nations. My guest is an expert on the UN. Dr. Thomas Weiss is a distinguished scholar of international relations and global governance with special expertise in the politics of the United Nations. Since 1998, he has been a presidential professor at the Graduate Center of CUNY, City University of New York, and he is Director Emeritus of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. One of his many UN-related books is Would the UN Be Better Without the United Nations? Dr. Thomas Weiss, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Great to see you, Bill. Great to see you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Let's dive right into it. Uh, you have written so much on the UN. You're a preeminent expert on that institution. Let's just, spoiler alert, what is the theme of your book? I guess the title says everything. Would the world be better without the UN? Would it or would it not? What are the pros and cons? Hey. Answer is found on page 190, uh, and I hope some <laughs> of your listeners will get that far. Uh, okay. No, the world would not be better uh, without the United Nations. Uh, but I ask the question honestly, um, and I think I answer it honestly as well. Uh, and so there are points made for both the cheerleaders for the UN as well as the uh, host of skeptics uh, that address the institution. So there we go. Okay, so we're done. <laughs> the show's over. No, no, I, I mean, I if you'd like done. me, I mean, the, the thing is that I proceed in the opposite fashion. Uh, that is, I go after the skeptics before uh, the uh, cheerleaders. Uh, so I think denying the proposition that the world would be uh, would not be worse off, for instance, uh, without the international campaigns that eradicated smallpox in 77 or more recently have almost done the same thing uh, for polio and guinea worm or that made insta inroads on women's rights, studied the effects of climate change delivered emergency aid to victims in the DRC or Sudan, kept the peace on the Golan or Kashmir, facilitated decolonization, fostered alternative development thinking, and the list goes on. However, the second counterfactual, the second half of the book, asks a different what if for a different audience, namely far too many people who wave uh, blue pom-poms. Because there are substantial, substantial debits on the organization's ledger as well, as well. So it would be equally difficult to maintain that the world would not be a whole lot better had we seen improved performances by the member states, 
and by UN civil servants. For example, if the permanent elected members of the Council, the Security Council, had acted less hypocritically for Rwanda in the real-time genocide of 1994, or currently in Syria, or Myanmar, or Yemen, or Ukraine. Or let's say if peacekeepers had not raped children in the Central African Republic or spread cholera in Haiti, or if more dedicated and competent staff had performed better in implementing development projects, conducting independent monitoring, or if there were fewer interorganizational turf battles and more genuine collaboration among the members of the so-called UN family. And that list goes on as well. So there's one half of the book for the skeptics uh, and one half of the book for the cheerleaders. And some some people have argued, some foreign policy experts have argued that if we think back to 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis, that the United Nations played a critical role in perhaps circumventing or maybe deterring uh, some type of uh, nuclear exchange between the former Soviet Union and the United States. And there, there have been a variety of other times at the UN, since the UN is the only international, uh, really the only multilateral body that brings most of the countries of the world together in, under one roof, that some of these problems have been discussed and perhaps have been avoided. Have you heard that argument before? Yes, in fact, that's actually part of the argument uh, in my book. Uh, I think that going back to that crisis, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, is interesting. Uh, because if you look at the documents, um, both those in uh, Moscow and Washington, uh, it's clear that the Secretary General played an important role shuttling back and forth. Now, that's obviously not the only variable at stake in the resolution of that crisis, but I don't think we would want to test the proposition that it was totally ir irrelevant because both Kennedy and Khrushchev indicated that it was an important um, variable in the equation that avoided a, a nuclear war. And it's, it's similarly, I mean, we can come up with other events. And the criticism, of course, of the Security Council is rather easy to make. Um, I mean, it's hopeless, obviously, uh, particularly when any one of the permanent members, the P5, uh, interests are involved. So that's certainly obvious in today's uh, uh, you know, crise du jour, which is uh, Ukraine, uh, because uh, Russia and China also uh, don't want anything to happen. But that's exactly the same thing that happens anytime there's a discussion of Palestine when the U.S. has the same negative knee-jerk reaction. So I, it seems to me that, that the critics um, need to uh, understand that we get the same hopeless and helpless organization or the same useful organization, depending on whether the major players want it to work. So to take the example of Syria, for example, the elected 10 and the permanent five uh, were hopeless in that disaster of a humanitarian in the war. However, the same hopeless, helpless elected members and permanent members, um, when they decided that chemical weapons were a step too far, happened, the, the UN and with the, the working with the Office for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons came to the rescue. So it's often said that states 
get the UN they deserve. I think more accurately, uh, states get the UN that they permit to act or remain on the sidelines. And it's a truism from the people I've spoken with at the UN and, and outside observers who say that really the United Nations in many respects, or in most cases, can only be as successful as its member states will allow it to be. And I think you've just proven that in your last statement. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you just you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, if you like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact mm -hmm. our lives. Today, we're talking with Dr. Thomas Weiss, who is an expert on the United Nations. Dr. Weiss has written numerous books and articles on the UN, and we're talking about the United Nations, is it relevant and is it important? Tom, you've laid it out there very nicely, but we're going to get into a case study, if you will, in just a minute and talk about Ukraine. Well, let's do that right now. Let's Why wait? Let's jump right into it. I've, I've heard so many commentators, most of them, and I'm talking about ultra conservative from Fox or One America News to progressives who most of them who know very little or nothing about the United Nations. You can tell from their comments, but they have a question whether the UN is relevant. And so I would like to get your opinion on that. I, and I'm not going to lay it out. We know how the Security Council was paralyzed at first, but we've still seen where the Secretary General has been instrumental in uh, brokering a deal or two, and UN agencies are on the ground uh, to really, they're in the line of fire, and they're on the ground to help people in Ukraine. But let me turn it over to you, you with that backdrop. How do you see the Ukrainian situation and how the UN, the parts of the UN came together or didn't come together in that setting? Uh, this builds nicely, I think, on our previous question related to the strengths and weaknesses of the UN. Um, clearly, the Security Council can do nothing because there is at least a single and usually a double veto in this case of Beijing uh, along with Moscow. Uh, but at the same time, uh, if you're a refugee, if you're a child uh, in need, UNHCR, and UNICEF are on the scene. If you're trying to um, th think about keeping up with the vaccinations, either the ones that have been around for a long time or the current pandemic, you have WHO. And so these agencies have come to the rescue as they always do because they are not paralyzed by the Security Council. They work in the countries that, that have the either the refugees or they work in Ukraine with internally displaced persons. Uh, similarly, the Secretary General, after I think remaining on the sidelines for too long, uh, did get into the action and played an important role, similar to the role that 
we mentioned earlier uh, in, in terms of Bhutan moving back and forth between uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev, uh, with Erdogan and Putin in trying to ensure that some of the grains that are one of Ukraine's main exports and one of the main imports of many countries in Africa in, and Asia in particular, uh, got to market. So once again, uh, you know, if states allow the UN to work, it can work. Similarly, uh, even though the Security Council was paralyzed, the General Assembly weighed in uh, with the usual politics involved, not as uh, dramatically uh, as I would have seen. There were too many abstentions, but a huge vote against the, the Russian uh, war occurred. And more importantly, at least for me, was the vote to um, throw Russia off of the Human Rights Council. Uh, the uh, Many people think that the paper and the resolutions and the palaver that goes on uh, in UN forums uh, is kind of useless. Uh, if it were totally useless, uh, states like Russia would not fight so hard, would not spend so much time uh, in trying to keep the General Assembly from weighing in, from trying to keep Russia from being ousted from the Human Rights Council. I think a precedent like that the only other time a, a, a country that was elected to the Human Rights Council was thrown off was Syria in 2000. Uh, sorry, excuse me, I'm sorry, was Libya in 2011. Uh, and for the same reason that Russia was thrown off uh, in 2022. Uh, there are limits even for the UN, which puts off an awful lot from its member states. And so I think that that precedent, keeping Russia on the sidelines, is an important one and could be built upon. So, yes, I'm disappointed. You're disappointed. Lots of people are disappointed with what the UN uh, hasn't done. Uh, I think we have to be fair and, and indicate what it has done when it can be permitted to act. Mm -hmm. That I think that's absolutely true. And I guess so often maybe we, we let perfection be the enemy of the good or something like that. But as I think about it, too, across the U.N. system, not just U.N. proper, let's say the Secretariat, the Security Council, the General Assembly, that type of thing. But we still there are U.N. agencies that touch our lives every day with the Civil Aviation Organization working to help move aircraft safely in international airspace, International Maritime Organization to move ships around the world, the Universal Postal Union working with postal authorities to move mail around the world. The UN is far broader than what we think about. How, how do you slice up? I know they're, they're different elements, but they're all part of that UN family. How do, how do you view these different entities, organizational entities, as well as programmatic and agency entities well trying to wrap one's mind around the complexity of the un system is is fairly difficult it, it's the yes. reason suppose why i've my textbook is in its ninth edition uh, and why i try to write more user-friendly books like the one we're talking about today 
is to indicate just how um, complex the a range of services is. Of course, my criticism over the years of the so-called UN system is that it is, I use the term family because like most families, it's rather dysfunctional. Uh, there is far less collaboration and far more competition, useless competition than I would like to see. But uh, in comparison with the um, previous administration, which uh, actually uh, never met a UN organization that it liked, and even, as you mentioned, the Universal Postal Union, which has been fixing postal rates since 1874, was declared a threat to U.S. sovereignty. Um, so I would like to see that the Biden administration, which has declared fairly prominently that the U.S. is back, actually has done precious little uh, concretely in reversing too many of the uh, previous administration's um, backpedaling. Uh, for instance, we're still nowhere near UNESCO. The 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 WTO appointments are still paralyzed. We're still boycotting the International Criminal Court. Fortunately, the Universal Postal Union is back. Uh, but the U.S. needs to be back on the stage the way it has been for most of the last 77 years. Mm -hmm. There, that That is a good argument, and it's certainly a very factual way to look at the Biden administration perhaps needs to do more. And the way you looked at the Trump administration, who knew very little about the United Nations and didn't understand what it did, and was actually very detrimental. And But I just can't imagine a world where you don't have a World Health Organization to try to deal with smallpox or with polio, or a world that you don't have an agency working to help coordinate air travel around in international airspace. It's just, it would be chaos, absolute chaos, and not to mention be totally counterproductive and extremely expensive, and lots of people would be killed in the process. It's just, it's, it's just almost unimaginable, but that's, that's what you've got with some of these political leaders uh, come right down to it. Well, Tom, you've led right into one of your other books and we're, we're running short on time, but let me, you've already started to talk about this. One of your books was what's wrong with the United Nations and how to fix it. What are some of the other recommendations you might make to make the UN more effective, to make it more efficient and to help it be a better organization? Well, this is not going to be a minute-long response, Bill, if you permit me. <laughs> That's all right. um, take, take two okay. minutes. <laughs> okay, the, the, same, the same lens uh, that I use in that book, I use uh, in the one we were talking about today, Would the World Be Better Without the UN? Uh, I think there are four huge problems, uh, one of those being state sovereignty, another of them being that the useless clash in what I call the North-South theater. The third thing happens to be atomization. I've begun to talk about that in terms of the total decentralization of the UN system. And the fourth thing is related to leadership and staff. It seems to me for all four of those, um, we've seen a little progress here and there and much more could be done. So it, I think the toughest nut to crack is of course state sovereignty. Um, and uh, in this respect, alas, you know, 
Trump was not a total aberration. Uh, you need to look elsewhere or there's Xi or Putin or Orban or Modi and a host of others worldwide. And we think about the current state of climate or we think about the reaction to COVID and circling the wagons as opposed to collaboration. And for those of your viewers who haven't read the UN Charter, the most cited article happens to be 2.7, uh, Article 2.7, which is at the basis for the, the sort of my country first attitudes that, that are so prevalent. That being said, there still have been a, numerous indications that state sovereignty is not as sacrosanct as it used to be. We merely have to think about the flow of ideas and people and finances, or we think about the kinds of expectations how one has about human rights or the responsibility to protect. Uh, in, in many ways, just state sovereignty ain't what it used to be. Um, but that's still, I think, the number one problem and not something we're going to do much about. The other three, we've seen a little more uh, I think indications that that uh, we can change the useless confrontation of North and South that somehow you know Chad and Nicaragua are the same as China and that somehow uh, whether it's the uh, Scandinavians uh, in the U.S. that were supposedly all on the same wavelength there's just a useless confrontation. However, this predictable theater and predictable paralysis. Uh, sometimes breaks down and it's in those moments that progress happens. Uh, so I think if one looks at uh, what happened in order to bring about the ban on landmines or the creation of the International Criminal Court uh, or the doctrine of the responsibility to protect, there have been marriages, not shotgun marriages, but marriages uh, between countries in the global north and global south, it allows one to move beyond these age-old confrontations. So that's possible. Similarly, the um, what I talked about earlier, namely the uh, what I see is the useless fragmentation and atomization, and UN agencies all chasing uh, funds. Uh, in 1969, in one of the first reports that was done on the, we talked about the complex UN system, that was done by Sir Robert Jackson uh, and Dame Margaret Anstey, neither Sir or, or, or Dames at the, at the time, but in 1969, in the introduction to this study, which was about the the uh, development system, but it applies as well to the humanitarian system. Uh, and the peace building and political systems as well. Uh, they compared the, that part of the UN to a prehistoric monster. Uh, well, that dinosaur happens to be, you know, 50, uh, 53 years older. I'm not sure what we now call it, but it seems to be we need fewer moving parts in the UN system. And then for this to happen, it needs the need is for donors, the countries that finance the system, to quit speaking out of two sides of their mouths and insist upon the kind of centralized funding and centralized um, delivery 
Uh, we have lots of words for it that we actually, they sound good and delivering as one or humanitarian clusters, but they actually don't work. There is one example which happened, uh, which is the creation of UN Women, mm-hmm. which took four rather insignificant parts of the UN Secretariat and pulled them together. So it's that kind of consolidation uh, that I think would make a lot of sense and would get more bang for the euro or the buck. And finally, the thing that I'm always most concerned about is the quality of the people who work for the institution. Uh, And for my 10 years as a staff member and now 40 outside, uh, to be kind, I'd have to say, leaves much to be desired. Um, one needs to pay a whole lot less attention to national quotas. Uh, one needs to return to the notion of an independent, competent, autonomous secretariat that began with the League of Nations. There have always been problems. But at, at this point in time, there's no excuse for the kind of um, padding of secretaries that one sees. There's also, frankly, no excuse for the kinds of uh, elections uh, for the heads of agencies, uh, which are done in smoke-filled rooms uh, behind the scenes with too little consideration given to the needs of the organization and way too much given to the politics of uh, which continent hasn't been represented or which gender has to be represented I'd like to see the secretariat, and there are lots of instances of this uh, in which leaders and qualified staff make a difference. Exactly. Well, Tom Weiss, those are excellent recommendations, and I would encourage everyone to get one or more of your books. You have so many out there, but keep my retirement account in mind. Yes. <laughs> well, we know the UN is not a perfect organization, but it's absolutely essential and we'd be far worse off without it. But Dr. Thomas Weiss, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.